Our first scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 11. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, in the season of Advent, we are going to be mostly reading prophecies, uh, other things from the Old Testament that relate to the coming of Christ, what it will mean, what it will be like when he comes, what he's going to be doing when he arrives. And you can follow along here as Holly reads it for us. Holly, if you'd come. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All right, we are in our last week in a series in the book of Galatians. We've been working through it this fall. We are dipping just slightly into Advent uh, to finish it off, so please excuse uh, the planning on that. We almost made it, uh, but we have one final text here. It's Galatians 6, 11 through 18, and before uh, we preach on it, I'm going to invite Judy up. Judy, if you would come and read it, you can follow along on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Judy. Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, you probably know the name Isaac Watts. He's uh, one of the best, the most prolific hymn writers in Christian history around this time of year. We sing one of his best-known hymns it's called Joy to the World. You may have heard of it. Um, but Watts was not just a hymn writer. He was a pastor. And specifically, he was a pastor in England in what was known as a dissenting church, or just a church that didn't join uh, the National Anglican Church. 
And his, in his desire to be a good pastor, Watts believed the people of his church should, should sing the truths of all the scriptures. But in the Anglican church, like the, the main line, the main national church at that point, people only sang the metrical psalms. And Watts wanted to supplement these metrical psalms uh, with all kinds of hymns and songs taken from other parts of scripture. So in the year 1707, he was preparing for a communion service. Watts wrote a poem that came to him into a hymn, and the hymn was, is the one uh, entitled, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Again, you may have heard of it. The original name of that, though, was not When I Survey. It was Crucifixion to the World by the Cross of Christ. Not, not quite as catchy. Uh, they renamed it. But it does make it clear where that hymn, where that poem originated from. It comes from Paul's final words to the Galatians. Particularly in verse 14, you can see how Watts was inspired. The second verse of when I survey says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. Sound anything like verse 14? You can see where he was getting it from. In the closing section of Galatians, the Apostle Paul takes up the pen himself, and he wants to remind these Galatians of all the things he's been writing about. He's summarizing, and again, it's going to be, there are two kinds of churches, two ways to live, two kinds of teachers, two kinds of gospels, two kinds of everything. You know, as far as we know, Paul normally dictated his letters to a scribe, he, so he would speak and someone else would write all the words down. It's definitely the case in the letter to the Corinthians, a couple other ones, where he literally says, so-and-so is, you know, busy writing all this down. It's likely what happened here. But at the end of this letter, in verse 11, it seems that Paul is saying, hey, you know, pass me the pen. I want to write with my own hand. And maybe he wrote larger letters for emphasis, maybe because he had something on with his eyes. We don't really know. But he's, gonna, he's going to summarize all that he's written in Galatians. Today's outline will sound a lot like what other ones in this series have sounded like. But there are a couple subtle nuances that I want to bring out. So part, we'll have two parts to today's text. Part one, we'll talk about the way of the flesh. And part two, the way of the gospel. Now, when I say way of the flesh, actually, a small group this week, we were talking about how strange of a word it is uh, that he uses this word flesh to describe the old sinful nature. It's this distinctively Paul move. He takes a normal Greek word for body, just for regular old body, and he pumps it full of this spiritual meaning. When Paul says flesh in this passage, 12, 13, other parts of Galatians, he's not describing regular bodily activities, eating, drinking, sleeping, all that stuff. He's using this word as shorthand for life without God. And that's how I want to use it here in my first point. To live in the flesh, it's to ignore God, to ignore his kingdom. It's to pursue what comes normally or naturally to humanity, sinful passions and desires. Now, we, so we can use the word flesh to describe this way of life, this kind of life. But we might also choose a word, something like materialists or, or humanists. The, the emphasis is just on what can be seen and tasted and touched and smelled. Those who pursue this path think, well, I'm just enjoying all that this life has to offer. But of course, when joy is sought apart from God, when Jesus is ignored, there are tragic spiritual consequences. Walking in the way of the flesh, walking in the way of this materialism ignores a fundamental part of reality, which is God. Now, how do we know if we're walking in the way of the flesh? It's easy to say, but it's not always as obvious. Well, Paul gives us, get ready, three motivations and two activities that characterize this way of living. So let's look at the motivations. The first one is there in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Okay, what's this first motivation? They are motivated by external factors, not internal ones. They want to make a good impression in the flesh, in their, in their body. They aren't in relationship with God for his sake, but because it's going to impress some people. 
The observance is primarily external, and it's primarily done for, for impression's sake. It's superficial, not substantial. And we ought to beware of teachers or so-called Christian teaching that makes much of the external to the neglect of the internal. You can use it as a test on yourself if you want. How much of your life with God happens only when people can see it? Or how much of your life with God only happens so as to make a good impression on others or to avoid people thinking poorly of you? I saw a joke on social media the other day, which said, I couldn't remember, I couldn't find it again, but it said something like this. If you go to the gym, but don't post about it, did you really go to the gym? Well, which just means, as far as I understand it, you teenagers can correct me afterwards, it seems everyone who exercises can't help but posting about their exercising. It's done, hopefully for real gains, but also for these superficial reasons. And so we might ask, Similarly, is there any part of our spiritual life that's personal and private, or is it only and ever done in public, social media or otherwise, in front of someone whose opinion we value? This is the motivation, the first motivation. External things are the most important. Still in verse 12, motivation number two, Paul accuses them of living in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he charges these Judaizers, his opponents, these people living according to the flesh. He says, you are choosing it because you want to avoid persecution. Now, I mentioned this earlier in Galatians a couple times, but um, Judaism has a, had official Roman protection, so you could be a Jew and not you know, be at least formally persecuted. But Christianity, being a new religion at that point, had no such protection. And so Paul says, well, you're going down this path, you're choosing this way, choosing circumcision, choosing a form of Judaism, because you think it'll help you avoid persecution. Now, on one hand, I'm like, that seems normal. <laughs> you know, who doesn't want to avoid difficulty and persecution? But Paul's pointing out, if we avoid the cross merely for the sake of comfort, we're making a tragic mistake. And we ought not think that this temptation no longer exists. Of course it does. The cross of Christ is, is still offensive simply because we do not live in a country with state-sanctioned persecution does not mean it's, not, it's no longer tempting to avoid the cross in order to gain increased comfort. But why does the cross of Christ still offend? Well, for lots of reasons, but I'll give you a couple. If you're on the more progressive end of the spectrum, the cross often offends by its narrowness. It offers salvation to any who will accept it, but also insists there's no other way to come to God. In the face of our all-inclusive world, the cross offends some by its narrowness. But if you're perhaps on a more conservative end of the spectrum, the cross offends by insisting there are no good people fighting against the bad people. The cross says, no, no, everyone's sinful. Everyone has to come to Jesus. Everyone needs salvation. See, no matter your background, to cling to the work of Jesus will mean some level of ostracism from polite society. The way of the flesh does not, it does not like that loss of comfort. And Paul charges them, he says, you're more motivated by comfort, by this lack of persecution, not by the truth. So you've got external val validation, comfort, and the third motivation, end of verse 14, is so that these teachers can boast in the flesh of others. So what do, what do they want? They want the pride of... of telling people that so many converts we have. Look how successful we are at ministry. There's this motivation of, of uh, honor and prestige. You know, those of us, or those who, not, I shouldn't say us, I don't do it anymore, but those who raise support for their work, ministry work, often take the time to write supporter updates. Maybe you've gotten these or heard these in the past. The regular update, you send them out to everyone who gives ministry. It keeps supporters up to date. Here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Something like what Debbie gave this morning. Here are some of the stories. Here are the things that are happening. 
Well, imagine a supporter letter being sent from Galatia back to Jerusalem by these Judaizing teachers. And they're like, guys, we've made so many converts. We, we, you know, there's been so many circumcisions that are going on. Uh, so many people have put on the yoke of Moses. Paul says that's what's going on. You're, you're, you're measuring it by these, this external prestige of how well your ministry seems to be going. Or perhaps just measuring it by how much it's growing and expanding. The opponents, these opponents, they aren't in it for God. They're in it so they can boast about it. They can make much of these people. All these motivations, uh, external validation, comfort, desire for honor and prestige, they belong to the way of the flesh. Now, motivations are tricky. It's not always easy to know what you're motivated by. Uh, And so Paul includes sort of two very concrete behaviors that these teachers do. And I want to point these out. Uh, In verse 12 again, first, they are forcing people to be circumcised. Now, I don't think this is a physical forcing. We don't have any evidence historically, biblically, that the Judaizers were kidnapping people and forcibly circumcising them. That's not not what he's talking about. They force in non-physical ways. Think cajoling, pressuring, threatening, uh, emotional, social, spiritual means of sort of turning the screws tighter on people. You know, maybe they're waffling, maybe they're resisting a little bit. And Paul says the tactics and beha- these tactics and behaviors, they do not flow from the gospel, but they belong to the way of the flesh. The way of the gospel is never forced, it's never compelled, it's freely chosen. But on the other hand, there's this forcibleness, this, I don't know if this is a word, strong-armedness to the way these teachers are behaving. And Paul says it's not right. And similarly, the second behavior in verse 13 is that even though they insist on the law, they do not keep the law themselves. Paul says, they're hypocrites. There's a profound hypocrisy to these teachers. I mean, of course the law is impossible to keep it in its entirety. You're going to go love God and love your neighbor perfectly all the time. Not, Not that easy. But Paul hints, they're not really trying that hard. Their heart isn't really in it. Excuse me. They are there for all the external stuff. Their heart's not truly converted. They don't really want to obey God. They aren't interested in the law for the sake of their love for God. Remember, they're there for the converts, for the success of their mission. They're not even trying to keep the law, Paul says. Yeah, they're forcing other people to try. You go try. So let's put some of these pieces together. The way of the flesh, it's characterized, remember, external validation, the pursuit of comfort, clamors for prestige. It's seen as, as, as the mission is forced forward, even as the leaders do not live up to what they demand of their followers. You know, these motivations, these behaviors, not just found in ancient teachers, Found in modern churches, modern Christians. But the first thing we ought to do with this list of characteristics is not go looking for them in other churches and be like, hey, how are you guys doing over here? The first thing we ought to do is to look in the recesses of our own hearts and our own church and say, have we gone astray? Are are we doing any of these things? And I think when we do this honestly, it'll make us at least a little bit sympathetic. Because, for instance, you know, the spiritual life, church life is very hard to measure. It's, it's very easy to begin to rely on what are the things we can measure externally. Like last Sunday night, we had our congregational meeting, and we talked about lots of numbers. Here are all the things we can measure. Attendance and kids ministry and budget, all that stuff. And it's very easy for someone in my position, particularly, to be either prideful or despairing, depending on what the numbers say. Oh, the numbers are up. Ah, I feel great. Isn't our church wonderful? Oh, giving is down. Oh, everything is awful. Am I a bad pastor? You know, you kind of go down some other side. It's very easy to become a person whose spiritual life depends on external factors. 
to live and die, to ride this emotional roller coaster, depending on what people are saying and how we are doing. But it's also easy to rely on comfort. Feels good when people like us. Feels good when the neighborhood thinks we're wonderful. Feels good when our coworkers don't think we're weird. It's very easy to become pushy as a church. We have really great ideas of things you need to do. (laughs) We have wonderful mission projects that you need to join us in. When eager invitation, when enthusiasm tips over into things like forcing and pressuring and guilting and shaming, listen, that's not the way of the cross. That's the way of the flesh. And what I'm trying to get you to understand here is that these motivations, these behaviors, they are not unimaginable for us. Easy temptations to get mired in. And thus it ought to be a warning for us not to end up where these Judaizers did. Okay, let's talk about part two, the way of the cross. So they teach you in preacher school, sermon writing school, to look in a text for logic words, transitional words, words that signal comparisons and reasons. And at the beginning of verse 14, we find exactly one of these words, the word but. Paul is going to contrast his life and ministry with the way these Judaizers have operated. And this text kind of becomes pretty personal, and it might feel odd to us for Paul to hold himself up as the counterexample. A skeptic might say, isn't that a little prideful of Paul? Didn't he just talk about, you know, being humble or something? If I did the same, being like, well, there's not all, you know, those pastors, but look at over here, look how different I am. If I did this, you might raise a questioning eyebrow. But for Paul to do it, understand first, Paul's an apostle. So he's specifically commissioned, called by God to plant churches, reach the Gentiles, eventually write scripture. He has a unique position to be able to do this from. But also realize these Galatians likely had no other pastors to look to as examples. They're young churches, young Christians, probably just a year or two old. Their first pastor was Paul, maybe if he had a few companions with him, likely for just a few weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months. They didn't have a lot of experience. It wasn't a church like ours where we have sort of godly men and women who've been Christians for decades, and they're like, guys, well, we got this, we'll hold things steady. Paul doesn't have anyone else to point to as an example makes a lot of sense that he would contrast himself with these Judaizers. Now, what characterizes Paul's ministry of the cross? Well, the first thing is boasting. Now, that's odd. Didn't we just come down on the Judaizers for boasting and say, don't don't do that? We did. So, look carefully. They boasted in the flesh of those they circumcised. Remember, end of verse 13. Paul boasts in the cross of Jesus Christ. Different things that are being boasted in. Now, what does that mean? to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. We might replace the word boast with finds their identity, finds their self-image, finds a sense of dignity and and worth and importance. And Paul says, I'm not writing to my supporters with how many converts I've made. I'm writing to my supporters about the cross of Jesus Christ. What defines Paul, what makes him joyful is not ministry success or lack thereof, but because of what Jesus has done for Paul. That's what he's saying. That's what defines him on the deepest level. Paul's great confidence is not, I'm doing really well as an apostle, but Jesus has died for me and loved me no matter what. Now, I've been doing pastor things, full-time ministry things for about 18 years. That's actually quite a tough place to get to. It's very, very easy to find your boasting, your sense of self in how ministry is going and not in how Christ has been ministering to you. 
And as far as I know, it's the same with many of you. It's easy to find your great delight in, in plenty of different areas. Do you find it in Jesus Christ? Now, Paul offers us a kind of test. Maybe you're like, I don't know how well I'm doing. Am I, am, am I boasting in the cross? Uh, I don't know. Paul says... The crucifixion of Jesus leads to two more crucifixions. Did you see that? Someone who has really understood Christ, who really boasts in Christ, there are two more crucifixions to come as a result. A triple crucifixion, if you will. You can follow the train of thought in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of Christ our Lord. That's the first one. By which the world has been crucified to me. That's the second one. And I to the world, the third one. So what are these crucifixions? The world to Paul and Paul to the world. Now why does he say it both ways? Let's get into some of the nuances. What does it mean for Paul to say the world has been crucified to him? It means the world has no hold on him. You know that phrase, you're dead to me? I picture it in like a New York ac- thick New York accent, you're dead to me or something like that. What does it mean if you say that to someone? It means the person you're saying it to This person has lost all significance in your life. You don't care about them. What they say doesn't matter. In fact, you're going to act and live as if they are a non-being, as if they aren't even alive. And if you say this in a relationship, it's it's extremely hurtful. It's It's reserved for the most extreme kind of circumstances. Paul says, because of the cross of Jesus, the world is dead to him. And we would say, by extension, dead to all Christians. Now, what does he mean? In what sense is that true? Clearly, the world still exists. Like, we're still here. We still live in the world. In what sense does Paul mean this? He means the world, the spiritual part of the world, has nothing ultimate, nothing final to say to the Christian. There's no restraining power it possesses. There's no claim the world can ultimately make on a Christian. The world has been put to death as far as its ability to pass judgment on the Christian. Now, why? Because the cross of Jesus has robbed it of its power. The, the death and life of Jesus, they give everything a Christian needs. The Christian has been born again. They've died in the old world. They've woken up in the new world where their meaning and their identity comes from somewhere different. I remember the first time I saw the movie The Untouchables. Have you seen this one? Kevin Costner, classic. It's about these special class of FBI agents who are trying to take down Al Capone at the height of uh, prohibition. And they were called the Untouchables because Elliot Ness, you know, Kevin Costner's character, he recruited all, the, all these agents, these men, who were fearless and incorruptible, immune to bribes and threats. The mob could make no claim on them. So he, he's like, I'm only going to hire people who would rather die than give in to mob threats or bribes or anything like that. Paul says, if you're a Christian... He becomes a certain kind of untouchable. The world has no power over you. You're free to move through the world, to live in the world, to enjoy the world, to serve the world, but you don't have to worship it. You don't have to obey it. Now, understanding this, actually living it out, of course, takes time. We grow into this, but Paul says, on one hand, it's objectively true. Those who have understood and believed in the cross understand the world is dead to them. But on the flip side, they are also dead to the world. And there's a sense in which the world never quite quite understands the Christian. The Christian is not really part of the system because they are getting their sense of, of worth and significance from an alien source. It's not derived from anything around here. The Apostle Peter calls Christians strangers and aliens, pilgrims. 
And what they're kind of getting at is there is a dislocatedness to the Christian life. We live it in the midst of the world, but there is this curious separation from the world. And this, of course, stings sometimes. You know that. It's easy to want to be normal, to go with the flow, to fit in, that we, we understand this impulse that we operate in sort of some sort of permanent high school. We're just trying to find our group, our people. And that sense of dislocatedness, it's normal for the Christian because they have died to the world. The world doesn't care about them. But you can see how much this way of the cross contrasts with the way of the flesh. Different motivations, different ways of moving through life. The Judaizers, they need approval, they need validation, they're worried about persecution. Paul says, no, 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 there's a very different way to live because of Christ. The way of the cross is marked by this triple crucifixion, and it's also marked by a new creation. Look at verse 15. He says, he writes, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, if you've been with us through Galatians, this sentence is bewildering <laughs> because for an entire letter, I feel like Paul has been saying, circumcision really matters. Over and over, he said, if you accept circumcision, you can't have Christ. You've got to choose one or the other. It matters to a great degree. And now right at the end of the letter, he's like, oh yeah, by the way, it doesn't matter. Circumcision only matters. It only means something. Because these Judaizers, his opponents, have tried to make it mean something. And Paul says, when you've entered the world where the accounting is only done by the cross, it has no value. If you look carefully at his words in verse 15, he says, it doesn't count for anything. It's a way of saying circumcision doesn't have any power. Circumcision is, is playing the game with monopoly money. It doesn't, doesn't have any value in the real world. It doesn't count. It can't hold anything against the Christian. Now be careful, though, because neither can uncircumcision. <laughs> Paul says it goes the other way. Christians ought to avoid being proud or boasting in their irreligiousness. Just like the world has no hold on a person who embraces the cross, in the same way, when you come to Jesus, it doesn't matter what kind of religious or moral attainments or failings you have, because the cross isn't about what you've done, it's about Jesus and what he has done. There's a different accounting, and all that counts is what Jesus has done, circumcision, uncircumcision. Both of them don't really matter. They don't count for anything. You can't depend on either one. And so in these final lines of the book, Paul returns circumcision to where it belongs. He puts it back in its place. And as if to confirm the point, Paul says, all who follow this way of the cross, peace and mercy are upon them and upon the Israel of God. Sort of an interesting phrase, Israel of God. I think Paul is taking one final shot at these Judaizers. He's saying, oh, by the way, the true Israel, the, the God's real people are those that embrace the cross. You don't need external markers anymore. These true, the true Israel, the ones who embrace Jesus. Oh, and by the way, true apostles are known not for their converts, not for their praise of men, not for their prestige, but because of how they've suffered. Paul says, I can roll up my sleeves, I can you know, lift up the, my shirt, and he says, I can show you what I have given for the sake of the gospel. He's like, you can see it on my body. All the persecution these other teachers are so eager to avoid. Paul says, I don't just talk about it. I'm not just willing to face it. I have lived it. But I want to direct your attention to the final words of the letter. What does Paul want them to remember? What does he hope and pray that God will do? He wants grace for them. He wants grace for their spirits. Grace... It means undeserved gift. 
favor apart from merit. And I really think if there was a word that summarized Galatians, it might be this one. That Jesus saves not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. He comes to us with grace. He continues with us by grace. In that hymn I mentioned at the beginning, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, I didn't know that till this week, but there's a fourth verse. We don't usually sing. Most hymn books, including the one I grew up with, they don't have it printed. We skip it and get right to that final verse about the, the realms of nature and love so divine, all that stuff. But the fourth verse is taken almost directly from Galatians 6, and I want to quote it to you by way of summary. It goes like this. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree, that I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. So brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for what you have done. That grace is with us. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, not because we are a better church than other churches and you love us more, but simply because Christ has died for us. He has loved us despite everything we've done. May Christ's grace be with us today, every day, and in all the days to come. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.